0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello. What do we want from our leaders? We give them our loyalty, our fealty, our service. We make them wealthy, usually, and powerful. What do we want in return? That they protect us from external enemies? That they treat us all fairly? That they treat us with kindness? That they represent our values. These all seem like reasonable requests, although the specifics of what those mean might differ here and there. How do we judge whether a ruler has been a good one? I can tell you that I have a kind of strange relationship with history when it comes to hearing about different leaders in the past. On the one hand, I tend to hate them all. That's my first instinct. What gave that guy the right? Who put that joker in charge? Who died and made her queen? I tend not to like authority figures instinctively. Why is this? What does it say about me? I'm not sure. I don't know. I'd like to think it says I'm independent minded or that I have just the right amount of ego to think for myself, to stand up to fascism or authoritarian rule. I'd like to think I'm a good citizen, but maybe it's like George Carlin's joke about driving. When you're on the road, everyone going slower than you is an old man who needs to speed up, and everyone driving faster than you is a total maniac. Maybe my fellow citizens would look at me and say, look at this egomaniac. Doesn't he know we're supposed to love our leaders and fall in line? How can a president or a a king or a parliament or a prime minister or a congress or what have you, how can a nation ever get anything done with people who don't respect and bow down to authority who aren't willing to place their will at the service of the great leader. You're a follower, Jack. You're a subject. Start acting like one. On the other hand, others might say, what do you mean you don't bow down? Of course you bow down. You pay taxes. You live in society. You refuse to break any laws. You do everything they want you should be off the grid showing the man you're not playing by his rules. I can tell you this, though. I liked it when I got to college and they said, yeah, you don't need to call your professors Professor Jones or Dr. Smith. Here, we're going to call them Mr. and Ms. We're trying to collapse the notion that the professors are on a mountain top and we're all in the valley. And I thought, yes, great. I never knew how much I'd care about this but I like the way that this feels. Mr. and Ms. are honorific enough. That's the level of respect here. We're all equals. We're all engaged in the same pursuit of knowledge. We're equals, mostly. Respect will be earned by our treatment of one another. I've met some very famous people and some very intelligent people and some very powerful people and some very, very... Wealthy people, billionaires. And none of that matters when I meet them. I don't come away in awe. I subject them to a higher level of scrutiny. And if a billionaire is a jerk, I think, yep, of course, what a worthless fraud. I knew it. I knew I'd hate that guy. And I do. Not all of them have been total jerks. I'm delighted when someone proves me wrong. I love hearing about people in positions of great power. Who use that power or their celebrity for good? I suppose we have to define good. Some people might say good is expanding territory and turning your nation into an empire. Was Napoleon good? Is that what the French thought? Well, let me tell you how I get at the definition of good so we can apply it to our subject today. First, though, I want to tell you how I think about rulers when I see their names in the history books or see maps colored in with their territory and that kind of thing. It's almost meaningless to me. Not quite meaningless, but almost. I don't marvel at how much of the map gets colored in by this or that person. I don't look at their titles and think, wow, that's good to know. I need to know all these titles and in which order and who came first and who came next and and who held the title at a different time. None of that matters to me. I immediately go to the next level of question. Here's Alexander the Great. Here's the reach. Here's the extent of his conquests. Wow. And I think, what drove him to do that? How did it happen? Who helped him? What did the people around him think of him? Was he ruthless, sinister, single-minded, barbaric, intelligent, bored, scared? What was life like for the people he conquered? What was life like for his soldiers? Did his exploits make things better for them? What was the point of all that? Those are the kinds of questions I ask. That's where I get at my definition of good. And I have a little soft spot in my heart for culture and the arts, for the sculptures, for the paintings, for the poetry, for the freedom of speech. That's allowed. Your soft spot might be something else. It might be animals. Were the animals well treated? Or it might be religion or morality. Maybe not as important as, say, were the people living in constant fear or constant hunger. I'm not going to place the arts on a level with, or the promotion of the arts, I should say, I'm not going to hold a leader to that standard where I, I place promotion of the arts on the same level with slavery or genocide or slaughter or secret police or famine but assuming a kind of base level of peace and prosperity, I do tend to like leaders who show an interest in science and technology and have a well-rounded attitude toward theater or music or education or literature. I like my leaders enlightened and not afraid to be a little enlightened. I think there's room in our world for culture alongside the soldiering and the service, and I like rulers who are strong enough to allow some dissent, and some satire, and some beauty, and some joy. So, we have our subject today, Marguerite de Navarre, a powerful woman from the 15th and 16th centuries. She was born to nobility. Her brother became the king of France. She herself became a queen of Navarre, at least that was her title. And here we go. I'm not so interested in knowing about her title and her husband's title and her brother's title and all of that. What interests me is that she was a great patron of the arts, a great protector of artists and writers and thinkers. She fostered a spirit of intellectual reform. She's one of history's heroes in that respect. She herself wrote plays and poetry, and she is famously associated with the Heptameron, A set of stories that took Boccaccio's Decameron as its model, but which might even be better. (laughs) I said that quietly. Started to feel like I was being a little blasphemous, but it's true. It's a little less famous, perhaps, but very interesting for today's reader. The stories are interesting, a worthy contribution to literature, and our subject that's an interesting word, subject. Seems that once upon a time, had we been living in France, we'd have been her subjects, or in Navarre anyway, we'd have been her subjects, but now she is ours, our subject for today. Where was I? Oh, yes. The stories of the Heptameron are a worthy contribution to literature, and our subject today is a worthy contributor, Marguerite de Navarre and the Heptameron, today On the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for being here today. Happy Thanksgiving for those of you who celebrated that last week. It's a year to be thankful, thankful for what we have and what we hope to have in the future. Isn't that the way gratitude should work? When we're down and out, when we have the most reasons not to be thankful, that's when we should try our hardest to be thankful. It's good for the soul and it beats the alternative, which is to be ungrateful, which gets us nowhere. This has been a tough year but we can see some bright sides and we can turn things around. Hang in there. Thank you. Speaking of thanks, thank you to all the listeners who sent me kind words to wish me a happy Thanksgiving. I do appreciate them. You are the best. Speaking of listeners, we've got a couple of good emails today and we want to cover our fascinating subject, the Queen herself. Her poetry was translated by the Queen of England, Elizabeth I. Isn't that an interesting little tidbit? What should I translate? Is that what you think? if you're the queen? How about some Petrarch? No, too common. weren't there? weren't there any queens writing that I could translate? Ah, there were <laughs> Marguerite de Navarre. Here we go then. I shall translate or we the royal we We shall translate. One shall translate this. That's how things are for you when you're used to having your food tasted. You never know when some poison might sneak in through the back door. In this case, poetry being the poisoning of the mind. But I suppose you already figured that out. I know you're smarter than I am, people. I thought that even before you started writing emails and comments to tell me. I'm just trying to keep up, okay? It's like the the saying that the Supreme Court is not the highest authority because they are the best, but because they are the last. I'm not the one talking here because I'm the smartest. I'm the one talking because I'm I'm the one talking, I guess. See? That wasn't so smart. I couldn't even pull that one off. Okay, first email is from Francesca. This one takes a twist. Get ready. Subject, lady with a dog. Hi, Jack. I wrote a while back to say how much my husband and I love your podcast, that I subscribe to you on Patreon And to ask if you'd just seen the film of, sorry, to ask if you'd seen the film of The Lady with a Dog. I just found a gorgeous print of it on the site Russian Film Hub. and She includes a link. I'm sure you can Google that, Russian Film Hub, Lady with a Dog. She says, if you haven't seen it, I hope you will watch when you have the time. Mm, I will check that out. I'm going through another Mad Chekhov phase. It's my holiday treat to myself. I just watched The Seagull. Oh, good Lord. It's so good. Chekhov gets me. Okay, back to the email. She says, listening to the history of literature has become almost a daily late afternoon pleasure for us as we sip a cocktail and nibble on some little snack. I especially loved your program on Macbeth and hope you will have a part two. I was tickled when you said, during your program on Borges, that your Penguin edition of his collected fiction was beautiful. I designed the original hardcover. Thanks again for all you do with your programs. Best wishes, Francesca. Wow, what a sentence. That one gave me chills. I designed the original hardcover. It jumped out of the email. It's like, reader, I married him. Wow, wow, wow. I feel like I'm in the presence of some royalty. You know, I have gotten some emails from celebrities, some people who are pretty famous, pretty well-known. You would know their names, and that's great. I love all my listeners, both celebrities and the losers. (laughs) The losers like me. I'm just kidding. Isn't that sometimes how our world makes us feel, though? It's kind of a problem. If you're not on television, if you're not a celebrity, you're just a loser, That's the message that society sends. That's why people are trying to get on TV in any way they can. They do every, they're willing to debase themselves just to get on TV so their life feels real somehow, so it feels justified and warranted. What kind of a world is this, people? This is not good. Not good for us. Okay, anyway. (laughs) Someone. Someone said the other day on Twitter that Jack tends to rabbit around. I've never heard that expression, but I guess it's true. You get a little rabbit sometimes. Okay, my goodness, there are so many heroes out there. My favorite people in the world are never on television, people. They don't go viral. They're doctors and nurses and teachers and cops, good cops, and city council members and restaurant owners and staff and so many other good people the people who smile when you bump in when you bump into them not physically bump into them when you cross paths with them the people who are patient in traffic the ones who help their kids the ones who will see someone struggling to cross the street and who will reach out with a hand to help those are my heroes celebrities can be heroic too but that's usually in spite of being a celebrity. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yes. It's flattering to hear from a celebrity, and I'm very glad they like the show, but it's not really better for me than when I hear that my postal worker in Sweden likes the show or the listener who was on her way to Mongolia and was planning to listen to the podcast Under the Stars. It's all kind of the same to me. You're all the same to me. A famous person who is listening as she sits in her house overlooking the beach is the same as the woman in Malta who lets me know that she enjoys the show, too. We're very big in Malta, by the way. Looking at some new charts. (laughs) Someone subscribe to them for me. Could see some charts. See some rankings. We're big in Malta. What can that possibly be attributed to? The good taste of the Maltese. Some fluke we do even better in Mauritius. It's wild. Anyway, I'm still absorbing all this information. Anyway, I like all these listeners. One by one by one. That's how this works. Just one-to-one conversations, or maybe you listen with another person like Francesca and her husband do, which always makes me a little self-conscious to know that people listen in a group. I love it, but I imagine there are times when the two of you look at one another and roll your eyes. Maybe this is one of those times right now. Rabbit Jack is back. (laughs) Jack the bunny rabbit. I'm getting there. I'm getting there, people. All this was to say that I have a whole different calibration for celebrity for this show, the unsung heroes of literature, and I'm going to put Francesca, the designer of the Borges book cover, right at the top of my pyramid. Why not? Book covers give me such joy. They give me so much pleasure. I really, really love book covers. And I hardly ever talk about them. And here we are on the rare occasion when I happen to mention one. And bam, it turns out that I'm being listened to by the person who designed the cover. That is tremendous. I feel so lucky to have Francesca as a listener. Talk about unsung heroes, designers of book covers. We should put them on TV. They should be celebrities. So glad I happened to mention loving that cover, and I'm so glad she was listening and she reached out to tell me about the connection. You ask me, how are things going in the universe, Jack? Well, in some ways, piss poor, but in other ways, like this one, spectacular. Thank you, Francesca. The next email sets up our subject of today. It's from Barbara. Subject, thank you, amazing podcast, with two exclamation marks. I wanted to quickly mention the impact your Boccaccio de Cameron episode had on me. First, the intro section you read about the Black Plague, which of course was doubly fascinating since we're in the middle of the COVID pandemic, was disturbing, beyond strange, gripping, and also surprised me as far as how modern and understandable the language, and ri- language slash writing was all these centuries later. I love books that are written from eras long past that describe first-hand accounts of what daily life was like during that time and yet sound nearly normal, as if written in the present present day. Another exceptional one is the autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini. Anyway, your description of the Decameron was so potent that I ordered it and just started reading it today. I love it. I'm not sure if I... Would have ordered it if not for your episode. So a huge thank you to you, wishing you a wonderful Thanksgiving, Barbara. Well, Barbara, thank you for the kind wishes and the email. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving as well. I found this very appropriate that you liked the Decameron so much, as well as the autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, because guess what? Marguerite de Navarre was also a fan of Boccaccio. He and the Decameron dominated her world when she was a little girl, and she came to pay a great tribute to it when she was a grown woman. And Benvenuto Cellini had an even closer tie. She brought him to France and had him work in the royal court. Let's take a quick break and come back with the story of Marguerite de Navarre. Marguerite de Navarre was born in 1492, during a period when France was discovering Italy and the Italian Renaissance. Discovering is usually put into quotes here, since part of this was from travel, part was cultural migration of art and literature, and part was straight-out military invasions. French rulers and aristocrats were jealous of the Italians and their courts. Even little city-states like Urbino had a kind of cultural dynamism to them, with painting and sculpture and literature and social efforts and intellectual pursuits, making the courtly life kind of like an intellectual salon. Marguerite was in a powerful family. Her father was a count in line to be king. Her brother eventually succeeded to the throne. Marguerite's nephew became king for a while, as did her grandson, but we're jumping ahead in our story a bit. I just wanted to give you the flavor of her surroundings. Either she was the daughter of the sister of, the aunt of, or the grandmother of either the French king or the presumptive heir to the throne, her whole life. Her models were not the women who lived in the countryside or worked for, or were married to government officials. They were the aristocrats, the nobles, the royals, the people throughout history who had been close to supreme power, who had been able to put their stamp on the zeitgeist through this proximity. And what they chose to do with it. But first, let's talk about her childhood. When she was two, the family moved to Cognac, where the Italian influence was heavy, and Boccaccio was looked upon as a god. He had been dead for a hundred and twenty years, and yet the decameron was hugely popular and important to the cultural imagination of the Italians and now the French too. Marguerite's mother, Louise was known as the most intelligent woman in France. She had been married to Charles, Marguerite's father, when she was ten. These were the days when princesses were married off across Europe. Royals were matched up with other royals for reasons of strategic alliance more than anything. And hold that thought for a moment. We'll get there with Marguerite, too. Louise was ten years old when her marriage to Charles was announced. She was married to him... I guess it was at age 11 that they actually got married. Wow. 11 years old. He had a couple of mistresses he didn't give up, but there's some signs that they were happy together. They both loved books. Marguerite was born when Louise was just 15. Charles was born the day after Louise turned 18, and her husband fell ill a few months later and died when she was 19. Marguerite's father died. Marguerite was not quite four. Her brother Charles was one, and he was now the presumptive heir to the French throne. And Louise, the intelligent Louise, took control over their education and their well-being. She taught them Latin. Marguerite had a first-rate education, including Latin, Italian, Spanish, and German, and later in life she studied Greek and Hebrew as well. Louise also tried to marry Marguerite off to one of those royals I was telling you about. When Marguerite turned ten, Louise found a nice prospect for her in England, a seemingly nice enough fellow who was the Prince of Wales. History knows him better as Henry VIII, who ran through six wives eventually. One can only imagine how history might have changed had he married Marguerite instead, but the potential alliance was politely rebuffed. Instead, Marguerite was married at age seventeen to another man named Charles, a duke who was not well-suited for her, personality-wise. He was kind enough, supposedly, but he was not bright and somewhat incurious, practically illiterate, they said. She, meanwhile, was the daughter of the woman considered the most intelligent woman in France, and she was already getting that kind of a reputation herself. Maybe she was the most intelligent woman, if you could measure such a thing. The quote of the marriage is, the radiant young princess of the violet-blue eyes had become the bride of a laggard and adult. Yikes. It's kind kind of harsh. The two had no children, but Marguerite was now busy anyway. Six years after her marriage, her brother became king, and she became highly influential at the royal court, perhaps the most influential woman in France, along with her mother Louise. Marguerite received visitors, dignitaries, and ambassadors, and she drew in artists like Leonardo da Vinci and Benvenuto Cellini to work in the court. Her brother continued the military campaigns that France was waging in Italy, which included his own appearance on the battlefield, and one of those went horribly wrong when his forces were defeated by those of the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. Charles, the brother Charles, Marguerite's brother Charles, was taken prisoner and sent to Madrid. Marguerite went to care for him in prison and negotiate his release, which led to the Treaty of Madrid. Her husband was blamed in part, the laggard and the dolt, was blamed in part for the defeat on the battlefield, and he died upon returning to France. The following year, with her brother back on the throne and her own fortunes higher than ever, thanks to her success in Madrid, she got remarried to Henry of Navarre, which now made her Queen of Navarre. This was another disappointing marriage. Her husband was 11 years younger than her and kind of dashing, but he was a philanderer and yet another man who could not keep up with her intellectually. Marguerite, meanwhile, was still working for her brother the king on diplomatic assignments, negotiating peace treaties, and that kind of thing. At the same time, she became increasingly interested in the life of the mind. She valued writers and thinkers, and she became part of the religious debates that were rocking Europe. She was herself a Catholic, but she could see the point of the Protestants, and she protected many writers and thinkers accused of having Protestant ideas including Rabelais, who dedicated the third book of Gargantua and Pantagruel to her. She corresponded with Erasmus, John Calvin, and Pope Paul III. Her own work, The Mirror of the Sinful Soul, which Elizabeth I later translated, was condemned by the theologians at the Sorbonne, who believed it had elements of Protestant heresy, and her brother, the king, had to intervene on her behalf. That's a nice way of saying what had happened. A monk read the work and said that Marguerite should be sewn into a sack and thrown into the Seine. Thanks, monk. Her brother forced the Sorbonne to apologize for that. This wasn't just idle criticism. This was a period when Protestant intellectuals were often sent into exile or even burned at the stake. The risks were real. But Marguerite appears to have been profoundly affected by the different currents of thought, and possessed with her own intellectual and mystical faith. She didn't renounce Catholicism, but she seems to have hoped that it would undergo some internal reform. Later in life, she went several times on retreats to a convent. After her brother died, when she was 55, she was depressed, and she wrote both a play and long devotional poems that often discussed grief and sorrow being tempered by religious faith. She died in 1549 at the age of 57. Her greatest literary legacy, The Heptameron, was published nine years later. The Heptameron is in the tradition of the Arabian Nights, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, and its most direct predecessor, the Decameron of Boccaccio. In other words, there's a framework for a lot of little stories. That's what those works all have in common. There were supposed to be 100 in the Heptameron, like Boccaccio's work, in which a set of people waiting out the plague tell 10 stories for 10 days. But Marguerite died before she completed the work, and so there turned out to be 72 stories, which is what gave it the name, the Heptameron. Like the Decameron, we begin with a prologue which sets the stage for the storytelling. Five men and five women are brought together in the Pyrenees and forced to wait out a series of natural and criminal forces, a flood, bandits, a bear, and murderers, who are preventing them from returning home. They're stuck in an abbey, where a character who appears to be a stand-in for Marguerite herself, a woman named Parlamont, talks them into telling stories each day until they're able to return home. The group agrees to hear Bible readings in the morning and to tell stories at night. And the stories are much more modern, naturally, than the Bible, dealing with love, sexuality, clerical abuse in the church, the battle of the sexes, marital fidelity, and the status of women. There are class tensions and social struggles, and we see how power influences relationships, both on a societal level and within a marriage or relationship. Powerful lords and husbands get to reign supreme over their subjects and their wives, but victims of abuse of power are able to seek and effectuate revenge, usually through cleverness. We're left with an analysis of the nature of power, the dynamics of marriage and sexual relationships, and the role that men and women are given in society, and how clever people might get around those roles in order to get what they want. Or carry out justice they generally the stories are generally attributed to Marguerite herself. We don't know for sure what her role was exactly. She might have gathered some of these stories or commissioned others to write them, but at a minimum, she seems to have written the interstitial commentary, the framework that holds the stories together, which in some ways is the most thoughtful and interesting part anyway. It's like a movie of it's like you're seeing a movie of some fairly basic stories or fairy tales. And the DVD commentary of the directors or actors or film scholars might be a little more advanced anyway. And it is possible that Marguerite did write all the stories. Scholars have taken different positions on that. In any case, we can give her credit for the whole work, whether it's compiled or edited or written by her. Others may have worked on it too, but the project is hers, and we can thank her for it. We're going to hear one of those stories now. I'm going to read story three from day one, which is narrated by one of the characters who was an admirer of Parlement, the Marguerite character. He seems to have been modeled after a real-life admiral who was younger than Marguerite, but who was passionately devoted to her and who had his own amorous adventures that became some of the later stories in the Heptameron. All of the stories in the Heptameron are supposedly true, by the way. That's one of the stipulations of the speakers, of the framework, that the storytellers are free to tell the stories they like, but they must be true. Oh, and the listeners and the storytellers have all read the Decamera, and that comes straight out of the prologue itself, which refers to Boccaccio and the Decameron as a model for what they're going to do. But before we disappear into this tale, let's hear some of the praise. For Marguerite de Navarre, this remarkable woman, a French historian writing a few decades after she died said, quote, She was a great princess, but in addition to all that, she was very kind, gentle, gracious, charitable, a great dispenser of alms, and friendly to all. End quote. Erasmus himself wrote to her in a letter and said, quote, For a long time I have cherished all the many excellent gifts that God bestowed upon you prudence worthy of a philosopher, chastity, moderation, piety, an invincible strength of soul, and a marvellous contempt for all the vanities of this world. Who could keep from admiring in a great king's sister such qualities as these, so rare even among the priests and monks? End quote. More recently, in the Twentieth century American historian Will Durant wrote In Marguerite, the Renaissance and the Reformation were for a moment one. Her influence radiated throughout France. Every free spirit looked upon her as protectress and ideal. Marguerite was the embodiment of charity. She would walk unescorted in the streets of Navarre, allowing anyone to approach her, and would listen at first hand to the sorrows of the people. She called herself the Prime Minister of the Poor. Henri, her husband, King of Navarre, believed in what she was doing, even to the extent of setting up a public work system that became a model for France. Together, he and Marguerite financed the education of needy students. End quote. Wow. Remember what I said at the beginning about leaders? What do we want from leaders? We can measure people like this, people who are close to power. Presidents get all the, the attention, but we can look at the Melania Trumps and Ivanka Trump's and and Hillary Clinton's when she was first lady and Michelle Obama's and Jackie Kennedy's and all of those people who are close to power. Dr. Jill Biden will be another one. We can see what they do. We can see how they treat people. We can admire them. Laura Bush. All of these people. Princess Diana. All of these people who don't hold the power, but who are close to it and who can make a difference. We can assess them. You can see how much I like Marguerite de Navarre for what she did. French historian Jules Michelet, writing in the 19th century, said, Let us always remember this tender Queen of Navarre, in whose arms our people, fleeing from prison or the pyre, found safety, honor, and friendship. Our gratitude to you, mother of our French Renaissance. Your hearth was that of our saints, your heart, the nest of our freedom. And Pierre Bale, who wrote a dictionary at the end of the 17th century that influenced the famous French encyclopedists like Diderot, said, For a queen to grant her protection to people persecuted for opinions which she believes to be false, to open a sanctuary to them, to preserve them from the flames prepared for them, to furnish them with a subsistence liberally to relieve the troubles and inconveniences of their exile is an heroic magnanimity which has hardly any precedent. End quote. She has been called the first modern woman, and it's a little hard to disagree. We will hear from the Heptameron her great work after this. <laughs> De Navarre, from day one, story three, I've often wished ladies that I'd been able to share the good fortune of the man in the story I'm about to tell you, so here it is in the town of Naples, in the time of King Alfonso, whose well-known lasciviousness was one might say the very sceptre by which he ruled, there lived a nobleman, a handsome. Upright and likable man, a man indeed whose qualities were so excellent that a certain old gentleman granted him the hand of his daughter. In beauty and charm she was in every way her husband's equal, and they lived in deep mutual affection, until a carnival, in the course of which the king disguised himself and went round all the houses in the town, where the people vied with one another to give him a good reception." When he came to the house of the gentleman I have referred to, he was entertained more lavishly than in any of the other houses. Preserves, minstrels, music, all were laid before him, but above all, there was the presence of the most beautiful lady that the king had ever seen. At the end of the banquet, the lady sang for the king with her husband, and so sweetly did she sing that her beauty was more than ever enhanced." Seeing such physical perfection, the king took less delight in contemplating the gentle harmony that existed between the lady and her husband than he did in speculating as to how he might go about spoiling it. The great obstacle to his desires was the evident deep mutual love between them, and so, for the time being, he kept his passion hidden and as secret as he could but in order to obtain at least some relief for his feelings, he held a series of banquets for the lords and ladies of Naples, to which he did not, of course, omit to invite the gentleman and his fair wife. As everyone knows, men see and believe just what they want to, and the king thought he caught something in the lady's eyes which augured well, if only the husband were not in the way. To find out if his surmise was correct, therefore, he sent the husband off for two or three weeks to attend to some business in Rome. Up till then, the wife had never had him out of her sight, and she was heartbroken the moment he walked out of the door. The king took the opportunity to console her as often as possible, showering blandishments and gifts of all kinds upon her, with the result that in the end she felt not only consoled, but even content in her husband's absence. Before the three weeks were up, she had fallen so much in love with the king that she was every bit as upset about her husband's imminent return as she had been about his departure. So, in order that she should not be deprived of the king after her husband's return, it was agreed that she would let her royal lover know whenever her husband was going to his estates in the country. He could then come to see her without running any risks, and in complete secrecy— so that her honor and reputation, which gave her more concern than her conscience, could not possibly be damaged in any way. Dwelling on the prospect of the king's visits with considerable pleasure, the lady gave her husband such an affectionate reception that, although he had heard during his absence that the king had been paying her a lot of attention, he had not the slightest suspicion of how far things had gone. However, the fire of passion cannot be concealed for long, and as time went by, its flames began to be somewhat obvious. He naturally began to guess at the truth, and kept a close watch on his wife, until there was no longer any room for doubt. But he decided to keep quiet about it, because he was afraid that if he let on that he knew, he might suffer even worse things at the hands of the king than he had already he considered, in short, that it was better to put up with the affront than to risk his life for the sake of a woman who apparently no longer loved him. He was, all the same, angry and bitter, and determined to get his own back, if at all possible. Now, he was well aware of the fact that bitterness and jealousy can drive women to do things that love alone will never make them do, and that this is particularly true of women with strong feelings and high principles of honor. So one day, while he was conversing with the queen, he made so bold as to say that he felt very sorry for her when he saw how little the king really loved her. The queen had heard all about the affair between the king and the gentleman's wife, and merely replied, I do not expect to be able to combine both honor and pleasure in my position. I am perfectly well aware that while I receive honor and respect, it is she who has all the pleasure." but then I know, too, that while she may have the pleasure, she does not receive the honor and respect. He knew, of course, to whom she was referring, and this was his reply. Madam, you were born to honor and respect. You are, after all, of such high birth that being queen or being empress could scarcely add to your nobility. But you are also beautiful, charming, and refined, and you deserve to have your pleasures as well. The woman who is depriving you of those pleasures which are yours by right is in fact doing herself more harm, because her moment of glory will eventually turn to shame, and she will forfeit as much pleasure as she, you, or any woman in the kingdom of Naples could ever have. And if I may say so, madam, if the king didn't have a crown on his head— he wouldn't have the slightest advantage over me as far as giving pleasure to ladies is concerned. What is more, I'm quite sure that in order to satisfy a refined person such as yourself, he really ought to be wishing he could exchange his constitution for one more like my own. The queen laughed and said, The king may have a more delicate constitution than your own. Even so, the love which he bears me gives me so much satisfaction that I prefer it. To all else. Madam, if that were the case, then I would not feel so sorry for you, because I know that you would derive great happiness from the pure love you feel within you, if it were matched by an equally pure love on the part of the king. But God has denied you this, in order that you should not find in this man the answer to all your wants, and so make him your God on earth." I admit, said the queen, that my love for him is so deep that you will never find its like wherever you may look. Forgive me, said the gentleman, but there are hearts whose love you've never sounded. May I be so bold as to tell you that there is a certain person who loves you, and loves you so deeply and so desperately that in comparison your love for the king is as nothing, and his love grows and goes on growing in proportion as he sees the king's love for you diminishing. So, if it were, madam, to please you, and you were to receive his love, you would be more than compensated for all that you have lost. The queen began to realize, both from what he was saying and from the expression on his face, that he was speaking from the depths of his heart. She remembered that he had some time ago sought to do her service, and that he had felt so deeply about it that he had become quite melancholy. At the time, she had assumed the cause of his mood lay with his wife, but she was now quite convinced that the real reason was his love for her. Love is a powerful force, and will make itself felt whenever it is more than mere pretense and it was this powerful force that now made her certain of what remained hidden from the rest of the world. She looked at him again. He was certainly more attractive than her husband. He had been left by his wife, too, just as she had been left by the king. Tormented by jealousy and bitterness, allured by the gentleman's passion, she sighed. Tears came to her eyes, and she began, "'Oh, God!' Must it take the desire for revenge to drive me to do what love alone would never have driven me to? Her words were not lost on the gentleman who replied, Madam, vengeance is sweet indeed when instead of taking one's enemy's life, one gives life to a lover who is true. It is time, I think, that the truth freed you from this foolish love for a man who certainly has no love for you. It is time that a just and reasonable love banished from you these fears that so ill become one whose spirit is so strong and so virtuous. Why hesitate, madam? Let us set aside rank and station. Let us look upon ourselves as a man and a woman, as the two most wronged people in the world, as two people who have been betrayed and mocked by those whom we loved with all our hearts." Let us, madam, take our revenge, not in order to punish them as they deserve, but in order to do justice to our love. My love for you is unbearable. If it is not requited, I shall die. Unless your heart is as hard as diamond or as stone, it is impossible that you should not feel some spark from this fire that burns the more fiercely within me the more I try to stifle it, I am dying for love of you, and if that cannot move you to take pity on me and grant me your love, then at least your own love for yourself must surely force you to do so. For you, who are so perfect that you merit the devotion of all the honorable and worthy men in all the world, have been despised and deserted by the very man for whose sake you have disdained all others. At this speech, The queen was quite beside herself. Lest her face betray the turmoil of her mind, she took his arm and led him into the garden adjoining her room. For a long time she walked up and down with him, saying nothing. But he knew that the conquest was almost complete, and when they reached the end of the path, where no one could see them, he expressed in the clearest possible way the love that for so long he had kept concealed. At last they were of one mind, and so it was, one might say, that together they enacted a vengeance, having found the passion too much to bear. Before they parted they arranged that whenever the husband made his trips to the village, he would, if the king had gone off to the town, go straight to the castle to see the queen. Thus they would fool the very people who were trying to fool them. Moreover, there would now be four people joining in the fun, instead of just two, thinking they had it all to themselves. Once this was settled, the queen retired to her room and the gentlemen went home. Both of them now sufficiently cheered up to forget all their previous troubles. No longer did the king's visits to the gentleman's lady distress either of them. Dread had now turned to desire, and the gentleman started to make trips to his village rather more often than he had in the past. It was, after all, only half a league out of the town. Whenever the king heard that the gentleman had gone to the country, he would make his way straight to his lady. Similarly, whenever the gentleman heard that the king had left his castle, he would wait until nightfall and then go straight to the queen. To act, so to speak, as the king's viceroy. He managed to do this in such secrecy that no one had the slightest inkling of what was going on. They proceeded in this fashion for quite a while, but the king, being a public person, had much greater difficulty concealing his love affair sufficiently to prevent anyone at all getting wind of it. In fact, there were a few unpleasant wags who started to make fun of the gentleman, saying he was a cuckold, and putting up their fingers like cuckold's horns whenever his back was turned. Any one with any decency felt very sorry for the man. He knew what they were saying, of course, but derived a good deal of amusement from it, and reckoned his horns were surely as good as the king's crown. One day, when the king was visiting the gentleman and his wife at their home, he noticed a set of antlers mounted on the wall. He burst out laughing, and could not resist the temptation to remark that the horns went very well with the house. The gentleman was a match for the king, however. He had an inscription placed on the antlers, which read as follows. Yo porto le corna, ciascun lo vede, ma tal le porte, che no lo crede. I am wearing horns. Everyone sees that. But there is one who wears them who doesn't know it. Next time the king was in the house, he saw the inscription and asked what it meant. The gentleman simply said, if the king doesn't tell his secrets to his subjects, then there's no reason why his subjects should tell their secrets to the king. And so far as horns are concerned, you should bear in mind that they don't always stick up and push their wearer's hats off. Sometimes they're so soft that you can wear a hat on top of them without being troubled by them, and even without knowing they're there at all. From these words, the king realized that the gentleman knew about his affair with his wife, but he never suspected that the gentleman was having an affair with his wife. For her part, the queen was careful to feign displeasure at her husband's behavior, though secretly she was pleased. And the more she was pleased, the more displeasure she affected. This amicable arrangement permitted the continuation of their amours for many years to come, until at length Old age brought them to order. Old age brought them to order. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I'm so glad you could join me today, and I hope you enjoyed it. Marguerite de Navarre. What a great woman. History is depressing a lot of the time, and and then people like that pop up, and you think we are sometimes very lucky. Sometimes luck rolls our way. Speaking of luck rolling our way, I don't, I don't know why I said that. I'm not sure there is any luck rolling our way. Speaking of luck rolling your way, how about that? There we go. That works. Speaking of luck rolling your way, we will be back on Thursday with a look at Broadway musicals in the 1990s. We have a special guest for that one. And we're going to kick off a month of Chekhov's major plays. It's my treat to myself. The Seagull, Uncle Vanya, Three Sisters, and the Cherry Orchard. Maybe we'll do that in four episodes. We'll have to see how it goes. One is on Christmas Eve, and one is on New Year's Eve. And if you haven't spent time with Chekhov in a while, I highly recommend it. You know, I read about the Decameron influencing the French court and think, wow, really? 120 years later? And that was still the book you found so compelling? Nothing came in between that that you liked better? And then I look back and I see that Chekhov was about 120 years ago. And I think, I'm not sure anything has gotten between me and that guy either. There's been a lot of great writers since then, a lot of great books. You all know how I feel about James Joyce and Graham Greene and many, many others. But Chekhov, for me, is as good as it gets. So I guess that is luck rolling my way. Chekhov and more Chekhov. We are part of the Lit Hub Radio and The Podglomerate. Learn more at www.thepodglomerate.com. You can sign up to help the show at patreon.com slash literature or at historyofliterature.com slash shop. We have mugs and tote bags there if you're looking to surprise someone with a little gift this year. Or if you'd like to surprise yourself, you can surprise me, by buying me a virtual coffee, which is a one-off donation at historyofliterature.com slash shop, or there's a PayPal me account you could use too. Links are in the show notes. As always, I am very thankful for all your generosity and support. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.